0: Uh, resuming our study in the pastoral epistles, primarily working from Paul's first letter to Timothy, and then bringing in um, passages from Titus and from Second Timothy. And uh, for those of you who are visiting with us. This evening, we we operate on a shared pulpit with three elders, and uh, every four months we have a different session, so we're beginning a new session, and uh, unfortunately, um, we talked about Paul's discussion of women in the church at the end of our last session. So, uh, uh, tonight we're beginning, I I guess, a less controversial, but not without controversial, section uh, in chapter three, and that is... Uh, officers in the church, particularly elders and deacons. So uh, hopefully this is not a, a dry class on polity, but we'll be able to discern the will of the Lord for His church and for the shepherding of His sheep. Tonight we're going to be looking at uh, verse 1 and uh, an overview of the office of overseer. Listen to God's Word in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to overseer, it is a noble work he desires to do. Let us pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon our time together in your word tonight. We pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit into the truth, as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do for us. But also, Father, to keep us from error and to discern those things that are of most importance to you and those things that are of less importance in the life of the church, that we would not confuse the two, that we would not major on the minors or neglect those things that are vital to the essence of the body of Christ. We pray that what we do and how we learn and how we apply all that we learn would be for the edification of the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ and that we might indeed think your thoughts after you concerning this, uh, this entity called the church. We pray that you would bless our time tonight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In modern theological study, it is very popular for theologians and scholars, both believing and unbelieving, to establish a, a, a conflict, a debate And Paul is always one of the members. So you have uh, those who pit Paul against James on the doctrine of justification by faith. And you have uh, even Martin Luther having a hard time with James because he appears to contradict things that Paul teaches. You have Paul versus Jesus. We've had occasion to talk about that in our plumb Line class on Thursday evenings. And there are many who, who teach that Paul was the founder of Christianity and Jesus, uh, rather, a moral or ethical rabbi who taught love toward one another. And they pit Paul versus Jesus, but in our passage tonight, we actually have Paul versus Paul. Because we have here something that seems to contradict, at least uh, in in some people's views, and and I think as we read the Scriptures, it's worthy of, of contemplation. It seems to pit an official church versus a charismatic church. And if you think about the churches that you're familiar with, even in our community, you know that there are those who have a very rigid structure, and then there are those who have a very loose structure. There are high church Episcopalians, and there are charismatic Pentecostals, all naming the name of Jesus Christ and professing to be members of his true church, and yet they seem to have vastly different ideas of, of how and even whether that church is to be administered. He says here, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man despires to be an overseer, it is a fine work that he does. Officers in the church. We read from the first chapter of Titus, Paul writing to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remained and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Set in order. Now, it's not that anyone within the church advocates disorder. It's rather who in the church is responsible for establishing an order. Is that responsibility given to elders and deacons, or pastors, or bishops, or popes, which derive from these terms that we read in 1 Timothy and in Titus, or is that order the responsibility of the Holy Spirit? And so we we seem to have Paul writing in one place that that he wants men to be appointed to do certain things within the church and pretty much to to govern the church, as we'll see as we go through this passage. But in other places, we see Paul advocating a a much more charismatic, a a much looser polity within the church. An official clergy in the church, bishops, elders, deacons, recognized leaders within the congregation of saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes... But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you, in the Lord, and that and that give you instruction. First Thessalonians is considered, and this is important to the debate. The earliest letter written in the New Testament canon, so very early on, um, and we'll see that that uh, that even in the Book of Acts we read of Paul and Barnabas establishing elders on the return trip on their first missionary journey. So very early on, Paul is establishing what appears to be a structure, a hierarchy, or an administration in the church. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, actually 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 12, 13, all of that section of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to describe a church where there's really no place for such a rigid structure. In chapter 14, verse 26, we read, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Well, I don't know what your experience has been, but having been in charismatic churches as well as Presbyterian churches and that that's probably the, the spectrum of, of my experience I don't know that I've attended an Anglican service uh, but but I've seen the the first Corinthians 14 verse 26 you know and I, I've seen the decently and in an order uh, we were attending a wedding yesterday in a church that um, a local church uh, in, w- in which it is it's it's considered to be, well, at least incorrect that that anyone would clap for sacred music. And so the orchestra plays or the choir sings and, you know, they they, they do a very good job and you kind of want, but you don't. And so that's kind of a a very, what's the word, somber attitude, a very um, uh, structured church service. We've been in churches where people dance up and down the aisles. You know, the difference within Christianity is quite wide. And obviously, um, each one thinks that it's doing everything correctly and can point to Scripture. And this is why it seems that maybe Paul versus Paul here, are we looking at contrasting church models? Are we looking at a church polity? which we're, we're taught in seminary. This is how the church is to be run, organization, preparation, administration, even a paid office of the clergy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, and, and almost all interpreters uh, interpret that double honor as being paid. In Galatians, Paul talks about how, you know, that it is, it is right that the minister of the word should be compensated so that he could devote his time to the study. So a paid office, uh, a book of church order. I studied that when I was in seminary, the, the book of church order. And this is, somebody has gotten together and said, this is how it ought to be done. And so they turn to the book of church order as to how this matter or that matter is to be handled. That's a, that's a, very, that's a very rigid polity. And it's a, it's a policy in the church that many Christians believe actually quenches the Holy Spirit and destroys the, the other model that Paul seems to bring to us, and that is every member ministry. Now, obviously, Corinthians is, uh, is an interesting book. They were definitely an interesting church. And you read things in, in going on in Corinth that you don't read about in Philippi or Ephesus or, or Rome. But even in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he, he gives what, what seems to be a, a perfect picture of the church of Jesus Christ, the whole body being filled and joined together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The whole body. Now, keep in mind that right before that in chapter 4, Paul has spoken of particular offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. And then he goes on to talk about what we call every member ministry. Where every believer, every member of the body of Christ in any location has a responsibility just as every member of the human body has a responsibility, a very important part to play. And that is the theme of 1 Corinthians. Now the proximity in Ephesians chapter 4 of the offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, and the the every member ministry in the same chapter, in the back, basically in the same paragraph, because Paul was not fond of periods, you know, basically in the same sentence, gives us hope that we're not really in an either-or situation. We We don't have to choose between a a political church where, where there's a rigid structure or a pneumatic church, which is what is called the the operation, the free reign of the Holy Spirit. We can have and probably should have both. It's Paul who writes to the Corinthians that the Holy Spirit gives to each one the manifestation of the Spirit according to His will and for the common good. It's also Paul that admonishes the church Do not quench the Holy Spirit. So do we have a Paul versus Paul situation here, or can a structured church be charismatic? Can a church with offices and even paid clergy be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowering the members of the body to provide what God through the Holy Spirit intends for each one to supply? Well, this passage and this this conundrum has usually been explained in the commentaries, um, explained away rather than explained. Uh, Many modern scholars believe that um, the structure of elders and deacons was something that came into the church after the apostles left the scene, especially Paul after he had died, that officers were appointed uh, to, to bring order to the church so that the church might be an organization like those around it, somewhat like Israel, demanding a king, that they might be like the nations around it. The churches were saying, you know, we're, we're, we're chaotic, we're anarchic, we don't have any rule or authority or control or order. And so they start to um, appoint officers. And some theorize that this was made necessary by the Lord's return. And they argue, and, and somewhat plausibly, when you read it, they argue that the early church was was most charismatic because they anticipated that the Lord would return very, very soon, and, and so therefore they didn't need officers because they didn't anticipate it going another generation even. Of course, when it did, and they reached the end of the first century, and John, the last apostle, uh, dies, and then his disciples, Ignatius in uh, particular, begin to talk about officers in the church. But we read in the book of Acts, which is generally uncontested. Luke's history is, is so good, and it is so in keeping with what was going on in the Roman world at the time, that even the most uh, liberal scholars don't contest his authorship of the book of Acts. But in chapter 14, As I alluded to earlier, we read, And when they, Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We read in Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas went back up to Jerusalem to talk to the leaders there, that there were already elders In Jerusalem, in verse 6 of chapter 15, we read that it was the apostles and the elders that gathered in that council to consider whether Gentile believers needed to be circumcised in order to be members of the church. And if we want to go outside the Bible and the argument that, you know, this was written later and and maybe edited back into the letters, which so many people say today that just doesn't hold any water, we, we can look at the letter of Clement that he wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, Clement was a disciple of Paul. In fact, is mentioned in several of his letters. Um, The the Roman Catholic Church believes Clement to be their fourth pope. So he was a pretty significant figure, even though uh, he wasn't one of the apostles. There were some lists of the canon of the New Testament that actually included Clement's letter to the Corinthians. Well, in his letter, one of the Uh, primary problems that Corinth was going through at that time, according to Clement, was that they had dismissed several of their elders without cause. And Clement goes on to say, you you, you can't do that. That, That's not right. That's an affront to the Lord that you should dismiss your elders without cause. And so we see that even in the later part of the first century, when, when a contemporary Christian was writing, he was writing about the same thing that we read, that there were elders and deacons in the early church from the earliest, as I mentioned, Thessalonians being considered the earliest letter written, and Paul talks about those who have charge over you. Others believe that it was a a preparation for the cessation of the prophetic gifts, the the charismatic gifts, that the apostles knew that the, the speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues and the prophecies and all of that, the words of wisdom, the words of knowledge, that these would pass away with their passing. And so by setting in place officers in the church, they were preparing the church for a post-charismatic era. Uh, the problem with that is that's basically saying that that men are going to replace the Holy Spirit and that this is the plan of God, and that doesn't make any sense. There there is no mention, however, of officers at Corinth or of gifts at Philippi, where Paul actually sends his greeting to the bishops and deacons. So so you do have a a struggle here for for our understanding and for our study, but there there is no indication, again, that Ephesians 4.16 that I read earlier would not be the abiding pattern of the true church in all ages, and that is that every member would provide what every joint and ligament was to provide for the body. In other words, there's no indication that Paul ever considered that the Holy Spirit would stop acting in control and ordering his church. There are those who believe that elders and deacons are simply a pragmatic development of church order, That historically, this was evidently the case. If you look back at the history of the church, you you see Paul talking about overseers here in chapter 3, verse 1 of Timothy, but in in Titus, he's talking about elders. Now, the word overseer is episkopos, from which we get episcopalian or bishops, and that is the form of church that we see in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Anglican Church. The word elder is presbyteros, which is where we get presbyterian. Now, it's fairly evident, and I hope to bring this out in in future lessons, that these two words are used essentially as synonyms by Paul. But in the history of the church, they were not always that way. They they went from a a group of elders, as Paul and Barnabas would set in each church, or as Titus was instructed to do as an apostolic legate in each city. Then, uh, among those elders, within within the first 50 years of the church that would become what is called the monarchical bishop. One of those men would take the role of the head elder in the church where we were yesterday. They, in, the, in the foyer, they have the pictures of all the staff and the teachers and everything. And, and up here, they have the, the photos of the pastoral staff. And you got pastor, 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 senior pastor, pastor, pastor. You know, someone's up top. And, and that's what people want. And that happened very, very early in the church. And and of course, as as these churches grow and uh, the bishop of one particular church is especially talented in writing, then he would become the bishop of a number of churches. And if his church became quite influential, he would become an archbishop. And then, of course, later the bishop of Rome would be considered the premier bishop of all of Christendom and would be called the Pope. And you see this development, this historical development, and and the answer would be given, and and I actually, you know, I, I heard this very often in seminary, and that is it's necessary for the church to be run this way. Even people will say, and have said in the history of our own church, that the church needs to be run like a business, you know, and every business needs a CEO, Everybody, every business needs someone who is the visionary, who is the, is the head honcho. Every ship needs a captain. And so the plurality of elders would, would quickly disappear from the church. It's often blamed on Constantine, who made Christianity legal within the Roman Empire, but I think that's, um, uh, that's a, a misunderstanding of history because we have powerful bishops in force as early as the second century, Cyprian of the third century was the one who is alleged to have said, the bishop is in the church and the church is in the bishop, using the singular. So well before Constantine ever came on the scene, this transition to a monarchical bishop. Yeah, I think it's rather ironic that uh, Clement, who was an ardent defender of the equality of elders, is considered the fourth pope within the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think he would have considered himself that way. Well, it is a knot that cannot be easily untangled, either the history of the development of church officers or the conundrum between Paul advocating officers in the church and Paul advocating a charismatic church. It's not an easy one to deal with, and I hope we can deal with it faithfully as we go through what Paul has to say to Timothy. But, I think we can conclude, at least in a preliminary way, that church officers were a very early development. They were probably brought over, or possibly brought over, from the synagogue, where you did have uh, somewhat of an every member. We read of Jesus going into the synagogue and and being asked, and Paul going into the synagogue and being asked, do you have anything to say to the congregation? And and so the model of of men within the synagogue bringing a, a teaching, bringing a lesson is, is something that we have a good historical basis for. And so we can see that the early church, having been predominantly Jewish, would be modeled after the synagogue. But church officers also coincided with the era of the spiritual gifts. And apparently they are compatible within a church in which every member contributes to the building up of the body, that you can have, you can actually have leaders, you can have elders and deacons, you can have pastors, and yet you can also have a church that is charismatic in the sense that the Holy Spirit is working through every member. Does it matter what form the government of the church has or takes? Well, every denomination says yes, it does matter, and then goes on to defend its own form, or lack thereof. The charismatic believes just as much in the importance of church government, or lack of it, as the Episcopalian does, or the Roman Catholic. That, so it is something that, that we, we tend to um, feel strongly about, and, and the way we find that out in the average church is by changing that structure that exists. Then we find out that people really do care, and they are very upset that you're changing it, and they will have their reasons why it should stay the way it is, while others will have very good reasons why it ought to be a different way. We've experienced that in our own church. Mark started talking about that in our discovery class in Sunday school this morning, how our church is not governed today as it was 20 years ago. Things have changed. Well, actually, it has been 20 years ago, but not 30 years ago. Uh, it has changed. And, and we see that, that from what Paul teaches, either to the Corinthians or to Timothy or to the Thessalonians, that we've, we've gained a, a bunch of different churches within Christianity. As I mentioned, we have the Episcopal Church whose government is by bishops with the Archbishop of Canterbury being the, the theological, the spiritual head of that church. We have the Presbyterian churches, driven or ger- derived from the word for elders, and the Presbyterian churches governed by elders—some some teaching elders, some ruling elders—and we'll talk about that when the time comes. But nonetheless, the elders there, there's nothing higher than an elder within the Presbyterian church. Well, then we have the congregational churches, and those are, of course. Um, Uh, frequently elder-governed, but they do not have a government structure beyond the congregation. So in a sense, we are congregational. We are Presbyterian in the sense that we are governed by elders. We are congregational in the sense that we, we don't look to a general assembly or a synod for direction, but rather we try to find our way among the congregation. And then, of course, there are the charismatic churches. Uh, now, what is interesting though, that the charismatic churches uh, that I am familiar with and, and experienced in uh, also had pastors. They also had deacons. And, and so even, even in the branch of Christianity that is most resistant to an established institutional leadership, you still have a form of polity. I think it, it can be said that, that we need that. Uh, one author writes, uh, John Stott writes, The health of the church depends very largely on the quality, faithfulness, and teaching of its ordained ministers. John Stott set out this his whole teaching on this with, with two introductory points. The first one says, God intends His church to have pastors. And the second, God has not specified the precise form which pastoral oversight should take. Now, that second statement, God has not specified the precise form, that is the common position of those whose church polity doesn't match Paul. Oh, it doesn't matter. As long as we have pastoral oversight, then everything's okay. It doesn't really matter. What form we have. John Stott was an Anglican. In other words, he was Episcopal. He has in his church the monarchical bishop. He has the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay. And he has a, a program in his church that we do not find in Scripture. And so with all due respect for John Stott, who was a great theologian, and, and a, I think, as far as I know, a very, very sensitive Christian, He's taking a convenient view with regard to the importance of the form and he's emphasizing the function. Another opinion we read, while Timothy and Titus are addressed with a view to the needs of localities in Asia and Crete, in other words, Paul was obviously addressing the needs of Ephesus where Timothy was or of Crete where Titus was, or wherever he and Barnabas were returning uh, after their first missionary journey, this author says, The advice given them is intended for all the churches in which the Pauline tradition runs. Now, this fellow's name was Robert Falconer. What he's saying there is that if you want to follow Paul, then you will have elders in your church. Robert Falconer was a Presbyterian. So we do tend to defend the system that with which we are familiar. The, the real important thing is what does the Bible say? And, and as I said before, we're, we're presented with a challenge, and, and I'm, I'm somewhat glad because um, we're a, we're kind of an elder-led church. So preaching through First Timothy chapter three would be kind of like rubber stamping what we already do, but we have the challenge of being not just a a correct church in our polity, but a correct church in our practice. We have the challenge of, of, uh, of having men in offices of oversight and of service within the church without quenching the work of the Holy Spirit, distributing as he wills the giftedness that the church needs for growth. The crux of the matter is that, and I agree with Stott, God intends for his church to have pastors. And that's just too evident uh, from not just Paul, but Peter, not just Peter, from, but Ezekiel, that he intends for his sheep to be pastored, to have shepherds. The very model of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd makes us know, makes us know that his body, his church, will have shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God among you, Peter writes, exercising oversight, that's the word episkopos, and yet not lording it over the flock of God. Now there is the real dilemma. The polity of a true biblical church must be conducive to shepherding and least susceptible to lording it over. See, this is not just something that men set out to do. Even in the ministry, when they're in seminary, we don't have a lording it over 101 class. Now, this is how you will take dominion over your church and lord it over their spiritual well-being. No, we don't study that. It happens to be natural to our fallen nature. As Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's whenever you elevate a man or a woman to a position of authority, there will be the danger, if not the likelihood, that they will seek even more power and even more control and even more authority. It it begins to feed on itself. And so the polity of a church must be that which is conducive to shepherding the flock, but it also has to guard itself against the tendency of all men to want to lord it over the flock. I often use the example of the U.S. Constitution. And the brilliance of that document is in its, in its desire not only to govern the nation, but also to protect the people from the government. That, that was the genius of our founding fathers, is recognizing that the heart of man is to power, is to ambition, is to authority. The polity of a biblical church must be open to the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit, and be least likely to quench the Spirit. And so somehow there has to be a a situation in place where it is encouraged that people exercise their gifts and even know their gifts. Robert Falconer says that the pattern that we see given to Timothy and Titus, he doesn't even mention the pattern that Paul himself established on his missionary journeys, This advice was given them was intended for all the churches in which the Pauline tradition runs. Well, I would say the Pauline tradition is the only one we have in the Bible itself. And all other traditions come from the church. I would say that the Pauline tradition is the only one that will guarantee shepherding in the the flock without lording it over. A plurality of elders without one senior pastor, without one monarchical bishop, and certainly without a pope, is the least likely to allow one man or woman in some churches to become overbearing and dominant. The Pauline tradition being the only one that we're given from the Bible itself, if we have to choose... I'd say let's go with Paul. Let's close in prayer. Father, we appreciate that the challenge that your Holy Spirit gives us through the letters of Paul as we read in Acts and Thessalonians, Timothy and Titus, but also as we read in Ephesians and in Colossians and in Corinthians. We see that you intend for the church to have pastors but you also intend for the head of the church to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the vicar of Christ on earth, being not the Pope, but the Holy Spirit. And Father, we desire to be just such a church, guided by men who meet the qualifications that you set forth here in 1 Timothy, but also fitted together by what every joint and ligament provides, that we might be truly built up healthy and strong in love as a body of Christ, we pray that you would grant us wisdom as we look at this letter and as we look at what Paul has said concerning the structure, as it were, of the local church. Grant us the Holy Spirit and challenge us to, to find the answers in your word alone. Challenge us, Father, to seek our own contributions to the well being, to the upbuilding of the body of Jesus Christ in which you have placed us. We ask that you would do these things for the edification of the church and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, please, and receive the benediction from First Thessalonians chapter 5, a short benediction at the end of his letter. "The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.